Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Hello, hello. Hey. Hi. Sasha, long time no see. Yeah, I think it's been like two years or so. Yeah. You think that somebody would mm. come visit you or you'd come visit them, one of the two. Yeah, well, I mean, we had Ben. Ben was here uh, like this uh, fall. Yeah, I think he, he totally enjoyed Croatia. And I mean, you people, I totally recommend visiting for some touristic holiday. Nice. <sighs> I need to get overseas more often. <laughs> uh, one day. You should come to, uh, come to Prague with me. I better get my business under control before I decide to run off to Prague. I'll be in trouble. Get your house in order. I, I do. This morning I uh, woke up to a dead bunny, baby bunny at my house. So it's been a fun morning. <laughs> it's a real bummer, dude. I didn't mean to bum everybody out. <laughs> we, look, the bunny has been in our house so little that it didn't even have a name yet. So Aww. I don't know if that's better or worse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my kids are not that. They're they're like, my daughter's like, eh, well, that's oh, well, cruddy, that's but okay. Never, nobody else in my house really cares. The hardest thing is, okay, now how do I dispose of a dead bunny? <laughs> so that's what I—that's what I was dealing with. I was actually on the phone with the uh, bunny disposal um, service. Yeah, yeah, the pet, the pet <laughs> shop. bunny disposal service. Exactly. Uh, they're like, you could get it cremated. I'm like, no, 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 no. I mean, I'll cremate it in my backyard if that's—if it wasn't a baby, I might eat it. They taste good. They're lean though, right? But baby like they have no or fat. Bunnies in general. No, no rabbits. Like this is a thing. I learned this watching um, different survival shows on Discovery Channel back in college. <laughs> but rabbits have no fat, and so you like their meat has no fat and or like very very little fat content. It's all it. Well, you can you can. Uh, still die from just eating rabbit oh because there's no fat there's some word for it like lean meat poisoning or something like that like this is what we do sasha like there's no elixir sasha's like are we gonna get started talking about something real this is uh this is the show everything that's in the show is in the show this is the show this is the show i like it i like it wait does one of you want to introduce protein poisoning protein poisoning is the name of it also also known as rabbit starvation. Wait, is it just rabbits? Or if you just eat lean protein, you will this, die. This is going to be the best protein. episode ever. <laughs> it's a, a rare form of, a, of acute malnutrition thought to be caused by a near complete absence of fat in the diet. So if you don't eat fat and just eat protein. You, you heard it here first. <laughs> eat some fat. It's good for you. I mean, it's actually called rabbit starvation. No, I believe you. Also, the fact that you know that worries me a little bit. I mean, but, you, know. you know, you just watch like those survival shows from on the Discovery Channel. No, he, he grew up in Arkansas. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I lived. No, I'm just kidding. He grew up on rabbits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, first of all, rabbit is a delicacy. OK, it is. I'll have I you have know <laughs> we grew up on squirrels. OK, <laughs> squirrels. <laughs> Oh, we were so. Oh my God. You had you had a box, <laughs> like we would have killed for a box. <laughs> this is gonna be one of those episodes. That's how I feel about. That's how I feel about that. Yeah. I really liked. It was a good placement of of the box callback there, Chris. Mm-hmm. That was really good. You're welcome. We should put a link to that skit in the show notes. See, now <laughs> you're explaining the joke, though. Don't explain the joke. Just, you just tell the joke and you move on. I have to explain everything. That's just what who I am. people don't get it? Sasha, you just hop in here at any time. Yeah, anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, does anybody want to introduce Sasha for folks that are listening? I mean, everybody knows who Sasha is, but like, we do a really bad job of like 
assuming that everyone knows everything that's happening on the show and not introducing anybody as they're on. It's because we're all friends. That's true. Am I the friend of the show now, Sasha? You oh, you've been. You've been already. You've been a friend of the show. I think we mentioned you before, so you're already on many times. Okay. Yeah. So I I can cross that on my bucket list. There you go. We must have been way down on that bucket list. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> hey, you were, we were on it. That's cool. that is awesome. Very bottom. I mean, I don't want to tell you. I don't want to tell you how to live your life, but also maybe you should get better dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Sasha, how can how can we introduce you? What have you done that people in the community might know about? I hear you wrote a a book once. Yeah, from. Who's who's that? Who's that amazing publisher with the great pictures on the front of their books? Oh, oh, Chris is pulling out the book. Oh, he's got it. I have it. I have it right here. I have it too. Do you have first or second edition? Uh, no, I have the first edition. I have the, uh, I have the first, I have the first edition. edition. So you need to you need to upgrade. This is I a book that was so good. Sasha wrote it twice. Yeah. <laughs> well, and so important. I think everybody I talk to, they're like, "What book should I first read?" And I'm like, "Uh, this book." Did, did anybody read the book actually? Yeah, I, I I definitely did. I I super I did. did. It was super helpful, especially when I was first getting started in Elixir, understanding some of the concepts. I think it was one of the best explanations of the stuff around OTP that I've seen. Yeah, I read it. I guess probably right before I actually met you in Florida, I, I had read it, and yeah, is it's fantastic. And I've I've told a lot of people to go out and grab your book whenever they're asking me where they should get started. I think um, I was just I was just trying to find the exact thing. It's chapter nine. Chapter nine is all about isolating um, errors and the examples that you use to like walk through how you start moving the supervision tree around and you start you kind of start with a like a basic thing and you say, well, OK, we did this. But now if we these things fail, like what happens? And you see like this cascading effect, of, you know, supervisors restarting and you you continually kind of like change that around to show different ways to build up those supervisors and ways that uh, like help isolate the uh, errors. And I think that chapter, when I read it, was I had already read through Dave's book at that point and was like had been around a little bit just kind of like watching the community. Uh, and But at that point, I think reading that chapter specifically was like, oh, I get it now. And I, I started to see how you would walk through like thinking about how you isolate errors and stuff like that. And that really it's for whatever reason, that chapter specifically has like stuck with me for a really, really long time because I thought it was just a, this great way of explaining it. That, that chapter pretty much describes my first two years of working with Erlang, you know, so it's like the condensed story, you know, my first Erlang production because I really didn't know what I was doing. and. There were like not so many resources then available. My I had like the top level supervisor and then a bunch of gen servers underneath and other gen servers linked and then I had those same problems and I sort of evolved through my own mistakes to actually understand how that's supposed to work. Yeah, I, I think it's great. And it, it's such a great showcase of, it, it, I think what made that so effective as an example was that it didn't go from here's a bad way of doing it to here's a good way of doing it. It went from here's, this way of doing it that has these problems, let's like iterate and it continues to sort of iterate on the design. And so you really get to understand the thought process. Uh, mm. And I think that's what makes that to me so effective as a as a way as a teaching tool. Yeah, it's also one of my personal favorite chapter of the book. And uh, this is also why I left it open. So that particular chapter is available for, for free, actually, on the menu page. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, awesome. Uh, nice. We'll, yeah. have to, we'll have to get a link to that. So I'm just reading. I'm reading your bio on the back of the book. How long had Elixir been out when you when you wrote this? Uh, when I wrote this, I mean, uh, the the first Elixir, of course, was 
released or no, not like the version released, but became open source in 2011, right? I started writing book late 2013. I believe that these chapters are written somewhere around middle 2014, and that's still before 1.0. Because I'm just noticing that it said on the back here, Sasha Yurik is a developer with extensive experience using Elixir. And I was like, when did the, I was trying to do the timeline of like when it all came out. I mean, extensive experience for that. I mean, well, no, but like it, I just, it, what was great about it is um, I think you did have extensive experience at that point. Like you were the, you were to me like the person who had the extensive experience. Like I couldn't point to a lot of other people who had the hard won experience of, uh, of Elixir at that point when this book came out, like in, in real production environments. Like I don't remember anybody else who I was like looking at who, who had that. Yeah, I was definitely one of the first uh, people who were using it in production, like pretty much when I discovered Elixir in early 2013, like within a month it went into production, which is uh, otherwise something very untypical for me. I don't, I don't really like to do this early adoptions, but this in my mind really showcases how I felt about Elixir even at that early stage. I think it was like 0.7 version or something like that. I guess at the time of the book release, uh, I, I could say that I've had some production or extensive production, whatever that means, but uh, I'm pretty sure that this is like some marketing talk. Uh. Well, you know, whatever. But that goes back to the, like why that chapter is so good is because it's at the time, and I think why this book resonates with a lot of people who have been around a while and new people coming into the ecosystem is you really do get the sense that it's like these aren't this is not like a, a a bullet point a bullet list of like all the features of elixir like this is here's how you build these things up from first principles and understand them and here's how they behave in real world scenarios and and i think to me that was i think why i enjoyed this book so much at the time because it was like getting a sense getting a, a whole set of experience that I didn't have as a book. And I, I liken it a lot to um, to Fred's like Erlang and Anger. Like you, you're just getting a bunch of experience for free by reading this book. Yeah, it's a basically a lessons learned book, you know, like I wrote some software in Erlang and then uh, also used Elixir a bit. And so that's so sort of summarizes uh, what I felt and I still feel that it should be a way of writing software. And like the book is basically, it's not even about the language. I don't think of it as a language book, you know. We just happen to mm -hmm. use Elixir to interface uh, the Beam and to use OTP. But I sort of walk through the language part uh, relatively quickly and we move on to OTP and the concurrency stuff. And this is what I believe makes it, you know, sets it apart from other books, you know. And all of the other books are also great. I think that it's great that every book has its own focus. You know, so it's uh, every book is different and brings something new to the table. There's bound to be some overlap, of course, but otherwise, I think we all of us authors focus on different stuff, and this is in particular mm -hmm. the focus of Elixir and action. Yeah, what inspired when you were? I mean, you had started, you'd been working in Erlang, you're working in Elixir. What inspired the writing of the book? The desire to kind of share the hard won learnings, or what? What made mm -hmm. you decide to do it? That's a good question. So to be honest, I didn't really think about uh, writing a book. I was blogging. Uh, I was super excited about the technology. I, I actually started blogging about Erlang after using it for some years, started talking locally about it. And then uh, as a result of this, I also looked into Elixir because I figured like, especially at the time, if I uh, post some Erlang code, uh, then basically people will run away. You know, And I, I don't mean any disrespect to Erlang, but I was trying to showcase, you know, all these uh, great stuff that we have, but still the code, especially at the time, 
uh, was quite rhythm with boilerplate. You know, even these days Erlang is, uh, I think, much better than it used to be back then. So I think that some, some, somewhere around the time when I started blogging, I had some, uh, like a couple of articles published. Uh, I was probably one of, I don't know, maybe five to 10 people blogging about Elixir in general. Mm-hmm. Then Manning approached me about the book. Uh, so I would say my, my, my impression is that what happened is uh, Dave Thomas announced the book first. And uh, this really, I could really tell how this increased uh, the people, the amount of people coming to the uh, mailing list, you know, so there was more excitement about the book. And I presume that Manning picked up uh, the buzz and they were looking for some authors and it, they found me. In many ways, I would like to say that they, you know, many of us who are working now with Elixir and who have, all of us who are producing some contents like you are producing this uh, this uh, great cast and I made a book and do some blogging we owe it uh, in many ways today you know who actually made the, th- the story take off so h- how long had you been doing Erlang before you, you got into Elixir uh, I started doing it in mid 2010 so it was like about two and a half years uh, or something like that before I reached for Elixir yeah oh, so you're like you're you're nearly what you're nine years Almost ten years in. I'm just gonna round it up to ten. I know we're just barely into nine, but shh. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds a bit depressing because it seems like it was yesterday, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. But but I mean, you you basically have a doctorate in Erlang. That's and Elixir. That's what I would say. <laughs> I, I don't even consider myself an expert, you know. So like, first of all, I tend to uh, I like to say I, I purge my internal cache very quickly. So if I didn't work on something. For like a week, I, I don't know about it. You know, if you ask me some stuff from my book, I'm not going to know it. Uh, I consult my own book, you know, which is also, I think, uh, <laughs> I think it's a good way, you know, to know that the book is actually working, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's a testament to the book, right? <laughs> so, no, I, I like to say that I'm a regular user, you know, have tried some stuff. Maybe I think this experience helps me to know that some approaches are maybe not working as well as other approaches, but uh, I definitely, I wouldn't even say that I'm like a super expert or something. Well, either way, you have a great way of of sharing your hard-won experience and, and, when when I've read your stuff, I feel like I'm I'm in that moment with you, growing as you go, and I think that's awesome. Um, from your book to uh, your 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 blog post about that you you brought up again recently about when to to uh, use a gen server or, or or just use a module, and that it's it's fantastic. It's a long read. Okay, if if you're like in a in a one minute blog post mood it's it is not one to try to consume yeah so so but that is it's a fantastic post yeah i don't, I don't blog a lot but when i do i try to make it count <laughs> that one post it's it that i feel like that one post i don't remember the exact title now and i should get it um because we'll put it in the show notes but uh the post where you talk about you know servers are about gin servers are not about like domain logic encapsulation they're about fault tolerance they're about concurrency they're about those sorts of things i've never like that was one of the ones where i was like this this is uh you could when i first read it i was like this is going to be super important like that was that was the first thing i took away from it and then it and then it became super important and people actually i feel like that was like a real touchstone for the community to point back to that and say like oh right like this is the right way to do it and this is like the way to think about it and then all of a sudden you see this thing like it's shared all over the place and everything it feel it, it it hit that sort of um it's like that post and then Fred has a post on, like, it's about the guarantees, I think is, is what the title of that one is. And those two are the ones that I see shared uh, a lot in a lot of circles. 
as like reminders of like way to do design and stuff. I, I think the post touch so, is so well with um, everybody coming from object oriented programming too, because they, there, there's a tendency to say this gen server is kind of like a place to hold state and it's, it's like a, it's like a class. And, and so then they end up, you have tons of them everywhere where it doesn't make sense in your post. You talk about how to use it. It's like that, you know, Chris was saying fault tolerance and, and just how to set up a system. And that's what it's there. there for is for setting up fault tolerance systems and, and being able to recover, not to just hold a bag of state. Yeah. I mean, again, it's a, uh from experience. So I spent, uh, again, some initial years doing these wrong approaches, which, you know, kind of seem to work, but then uh, they fail in many different non-obvious ways. And you're kind of left uh, with scratching your head and you're thinking about uh, what went wrong here. And uh, until you realize that you're using too much processes and uh, you cannot really even debug this kind of system easily, you have some transactional problems, memory leaks and whatnot. So. Uh, I've experienced that and uh, that's why I wanted to share it as a way of like uh, how you are supposed to be doing it. Do you do you have a process whenever you sit down to write a blog post uh, or whenever whenever you have an idea for one or, or chapter in your book or whatever is there? What is your approach to that? Well, I mean, for blogs, it's very unstructured, you know, like I usually I'm motivated either by some discussion or uh, seeing some things, you know, maybe being asked some questions, things like that, like watching Elixir forum, for example. And uh, then I get some idea, which then I just let it sit in my mind for like a week or so, uh, thinking about bits and pieces. And then I just sit and type and some things emerge. <laughs> I mean, for a book, it, it was obviously much more structured. I mean, Manning as a serious publisher actually demands some structure. Even though they approached me, they uh, asked me to write a proposal, which had to be verified. So like some table of contents first level second level some breakdown how how the plan is going to look like uh, what i'm going to talk about things like that so i had some sort of strategy so to speak uh, some high level plan and then i just went again chapter by chapter and refined it and changed the thing as i move along you know like it's not not so different from writing a software so like uh, according to my plan what's currently in the book chapter uh, chapters th- two three and four which is like more than 100, 150 pages, should have been just chapter two <laughs> of some 30 pages. <laughs> yeah, and some things were left out. Yeah, uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just curious, what, what was the hardest part for you about writing the book? Was there a particular piece of content that you felt like took more energy to try and explain well or? So, okay, so I'm going to answer like uh, in two parts. Uh, I would say that the writing in itself was definitely not the hardest part. I actually quite enjoyed that experience. The hardest part is I think that most of us authors are doing this in our spare time and it requires a lot of time setting aside, you know, so like uh, not being with your family, with your friends, not doing some other stuff. I would say three out of four weekends, I would work uh, 10 hours a day. It wasn't, I wouldn't call it hard work because I enjoy it. You know, I just in the morning I start typing and it's already evening. So things just happens. Uh, And it's not all about typing. Actually, it's more about reading. Uh, You get to read your book like 10, 15 times. Uh, You hate it at some point. (laughs) So, uh, but none of this was really hard part. Yeah, the hard part was setting aside this time to actually do the job, you know. Uh, But when it comes to just uh, actually writing and explaining, uh, I think the chapter, it's chapter, let me think about 11, about OTP applications, which was surprisingly the one when I struggled the most. So because it introduces a bunch of stuff 
in a fairly small space so like you learn about applications and then i add plug and uh, cowboy and i remember that my technical reviewer said like that uh, he was super confused uh, with so many things being introduced at such a small space so we had like two or three iterations with that particular chapter but other than that uh, yeah it was pretty straightforward the story writes itself you know it's like such super super nice technology uh, very exciting and uh, you really don't don't get out of space or something you know um, that's fair. I mean, I think it's interesting you're saying it writes itself. I mean, I think you did an incredible job explaining well, which is not an easy thing to do. Like, I think when something is well written and you can refer to the content and it makes sense and you can walk away really feeling like you learned, it's a huge testament to the writer. So thank you for that, because it's not... I mean, I, I haven't written a book, but I teach. You know, with Elixir Bridge, we teach workshops, and even that is hard. So when you don't have the direct interaction of being able to clarify what you're thinking... Yeah, yeah, thank you. I mean, uh, I think that like writing a book, of course, uh, b- being hard as it is, uh, it gives you a lot of uh, room because like it's it's a big thing, you know, you have like 400 pages, so you can really set set yourself uh, with some pace. And I presume, I don't, I'm not really familiar with how you're teaching, but that, that those are like smaller workshops, presumably. Right, and, and this can be quite, I would say, quite challenging because you actually don't have so much space, right? You have to do it in like a matter of what, few hours, maybe a few days, how, how long do they take? Oh yeah, usually they're day long, so they're pretty condensed. But you do have the advantage of like being able to directly answer people's questions and clarify confusion, right? Whereas in a book, you have to be careful about the assumptions you're making, right? Because you can't directly talk to your readers. And I think your do- book does a good job of that. Everything has the pros and cons, yeah. And I never did like, uh, well, I did once a half a day workshop, but I never did uh, like a day workshop. Uh, I used to be, in my student days, I used to be instructor, I, but I did like two months courses. And those are, again, cool because you have a lot of time, you know. Like, time to do stuff. No, that makes sense. That totally makes sense. Um, is there anything for folks that haven't seen version two yet that you're particularly excited about or? Mm, yeah, so the version two started like a technical update. I really thought it was going to be search and replace, you know, so uh, like replacing obsolete hash dict with maps and a couple of similar things. As it turned out, uh, I had to rewrite uh, some three or four chapters, mostly revolving around supervision. So the one you mentioned, Chris, is uh, like, I'm not going to say significantly different, but uh, I had to do a lot of reworking there. Uh, the reasons are because from uh, since 1.0, when the what the original book treated, we had uh, new supervision uh, specifications, and we had a uh, registry. So uh, had, I had to change some stuff in the book because previously I was using like GProc, and now you really don't need to use GProc. So I had to change some examples, and this is where the changes are happening. Other than that, I uh, added some treatment of tasks and agents, like not a lot, but. Uh, I think it's about 10 to 15 pages maybe of each, uh, mm-hmm. something like that. So that's the, that wasn't covered previously, that's not covered. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, otherwise, the technology and the dependencies have been updated. Of course, in the meantime, some stuff is already obsolete, but not super obsolete. Like uh, we have a new distillery 2.0, I have distillery 1.x, so that there are some changes there, but nothing super dramatical. We have new Elixir 1.8. Uh, already but i wouldn't change anything other than the version number uh for that version so that's not like actually i forgot uh about that registry and uh dynamic supervisor came out after all that man it's weird it's it's funny to look back because i feel like i use those things so much now <laughs> and to think back to like when we didn't have all that stuff it was just a weird time <laughs> 
but but it's much better. I, I really like that those are possibly one of my uh, favorite features. That those three features, even though they destroy the book, you know, basically after yeah. those three features came out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there, so the, there was no choice anymore. I, I had to do uh, the update at this point. Uh, but I still like them uh, a lot because this is what I use very frequently. Now I run like a bunch of registries. So, so previously I would have like one GProc uh, singleton and do some improvisations to know like make the name unique and now. I just have scoped registries. I don't even know how much I run them. I have like 10, 15 registries around. I really like it. Yeah, yeah. I, registry and dynamic supervisor are both like, I'll take those. You can take back all the other features, but I just want those like that, more than anything else. Uh, the, I use those constantly. Those are great. It's funny how some seemingly little things can actually go such a long way. Yeah. So like in 1.8, 1, 1. we got this uh, reduce in four comprehensions and I'm super excited about those. Yeah, I haven't played with that. I I don't. Um, I saw that that happened, but I haven't actually tried it out yet and played around with it to see what all it can do. It seems cool. Yeah, I cannot even recall the examples, but I remember that over the course of years, I had like uh, uh, five or ten or multiple times when I wanted to be able to reduce in the comprehension. And I mean, technically, you can do it without that. You can do nested enum reduce, but that turns out uh, very ugly very quickly. And comprehensions are like super elegant. So, so uh, the book has been updated, and uh, for anybody who really wants to to get the update and and see all the the new things that Sasha did, all those updates, hang around. And at the end, see, I'm trying to make people stay. <laughs> at the end of the podcast, we'll we'll give out a, a code that's good for forty percent off any Manning book. So thank you, Manning. And we also have three codes to that we'll figure out a way to give away for people to get a free digital copy of your book. You are aware that people can like click to the end uh, on, on the bar, you know. <laughs> but, but see, we won't put it at the very end, so they just won't know. Right, they have, we're they just going to hide it somewhere. Where in here. it is, exactly. It's yeah, just going nice. to be a secret. Randomly, Amos is going to be like, "So the code is." Uh, so, I, there was something that you mentioned in in an email about writing your own CI, and so I'm I'm curious what brought that about and what the experience was like. For the listeners, uh, we at my company that I work for, it's not my company, I just work for the company, we uh, run our own continuous integration, we rolled our own, we've written it from scratch in Elixir. Um, it's not open sourced yet, in case you want, you're wondering, uh, we do want, we want to do that, but uh, currently it's quite entangled, so it's going to take us some time. But anyway, yeah, we, so the backstory is we uh, host our code on GitHub. It's a private repository. It's what you would call a monorepo. Our system actually consists of a couple of different components which are deployed separately, running on different machines and different networks, but they're all in the same repository. And uh, we actually previously tried multi-repo approach, but uh, that re really didn't work well for us. And we were using Travis as our continuous integration for a couple of years uh, when I joined the company. I think it makes natural sense when you host your code on GitHub. It's like super easy to get started with something. And it's been working well for us for some time. And then it hasn't been working well for us for some time. So uh, what caused it to stop working well or what changed? Yeah. So like, again, I don't want to bash on Travis. I think Travis is a great uh, service, uh, but I think that uh, the summary would be with, we outgrew it. So as we start you know, we are a small team, but we are developing like fairly reasonably quickly. You know, we are building a new product. Things uh, have 
being added, you know, the code base grew, a bunch of tests grew, we had some integration tests and whatnot, and uh, things started to work in slower, you know, much slower, like an order of magnitude slower, which is not surprising, you know, because this is a shared hosting infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what would happen is we would have like somehow milliseconds turn to seconds, and then you trip the five seconds timeout on some OTP stuff like gen server, and then you get a false negative failure. So you have to restart the build, which takes uh, significantly longer. And uh, our throughput was really not like super big, so we couldn't run a bunch of different builds uh, simultaneously. And then you get to the end of that queue, so you wait for some time, and then you get another false failure. So by the end of our Travis experience, it was really, really, really intense, you know, really time-consuming getting something merged, uh, just getting something approved or uh, our continuous integration passing. And we have mandatory continuous integration, so like there, there cannot be merged to master uh, without CI tests passing. So... Mm-hmm. No one can push the master or something like that. So yeah, it wasn't really working well for us. I think the, really the last draw, the last drop was when we added some integration level tests, which would run for like thirty minutes on Travis, and they would inevitably fail on some random thingy again due to timeouts and whatnot. So that that really wasn't working well, and we decided to self-host. Right, that makes sense. Then we had actually a bunch of beefy servers. I think the one that's running our CI is like. 64 cores and I don't know how many gigabytes, terabytes uh, of disk of memory, you know, so we definitely have Mm -hmm. our capacity. But of course, this doesn't answer the question why we uh, wrote our own, because we could have been using uh, Jenkins, for example, that would be like a rational choice. (laughs) (laughs) Some some might say, yeah. (laughs) For anybody that sees Jenkins, yeah. But so so we had like this discussion, there there was like four of us on the development team, it was two against two, two in favor of Elixir, overalling our own two against, uh, and the, peop- the people who were in favor of were the CTO, and it was me, and I was assigned to the task, so I think that this carries a little bit of extra weight. And my reasoning was that basically in the, in the heart and soul of a continuous integration is you want to run a bunch of stuff concurrently. And you want it to run continuously. You don't want to have uh, cascading failures like single build causing other builds to crash or something of the sort. And this is basically describing the scenario case for Erlang or Elixir, right? And I believe that this is uh, actually a great fit, that these technologies, these languages are a great fit for uh, implementing something like that. And at the same time, we didn't really have like a complex scenario. We want to run this uh, OS commands. We're going to get success failure. If it's a failure, we want to know the reason for the failure. And if it's success, we want to, of course, get some status on GitHub. You know, So it seemed like for us, it's actually a smaller problem. We, did, we didn't set out to build like a, a yet another generic continuous integration. We set out to build our own continuous integration in the language which everyone on the team's no, team knows, right? So no like special DSLs, YAMLs, JSONs, INIS, TOMLs, and whatnot. You know, you have like your own, you have the language that you, everyone on the team by definition knows or will have to know. Uh, it's a Turing complete language. You have a runtime flexibility. There are a bunch of great stuff that can happen, you know. And we were able to actually fine tune or uh, tailor make, make this uh, CI to our needs, you know, have some things which we probably could do with Jenkins. I, I believe that Jenkins in, is in theory Turing complete, but like it would be really quite complicated and convoluted. You could, you could write enough groovy scripts to make Jenkins do what you want it to do eventually given some amount of time with your CI setup are you is it is it the standard thing of you know you're listening for some webhook or some status to come back from github and say we're ready to this pull request is like ready to be merged into master can you run all the tests on it and then it goes and you know grabs an artifact or git clones or whatever it is that it's doing 
and then starts like that build process and like cuts a release or you know how can can you talk a little bit about like how that works because i'm fat i'm like deeply fascinated by that it's something like that so we don't use webhooks uh the main reason being that uh we don't want to punch a hole in our network infrastructure. So instead we use like uh, relaxed polling, something like every five to 10 seconds for our small team. This is way more than enough. And we are with, well within our budget of queries. We issue a single GraphQL query and we get everything that we need to figure out uh, what to do. And like, this is super easy to set up. I, I, I remember that like, when I did like a prototype, in the morning, I knew nothing about uh, GitHub API, GraphQL, uh, or anything of the sort. And by noon, I actually had some hacky demo. You know, it's not obviously production code uh, quality, but still, uh, you can actually get that going pretty quickly. And uh, once that happens, we basically fire up a Docker. Uh, we build Docker images and fire up the Docker container for uh, each of the build. This is something that we did in, when we were migrating from Travis. And Travis, we didn't use Docker. Uh, initially it wasn't even available, later it was, but things were even slower with Travis and they were already too slow for us without, uh, without sorry, without Docker and they were uh, even slower with Docker. So uh, when we moved to our own infrastructure, we actually started uh, using Docker, which is cool because tests now run in an uh, environment which is way closer to what is production environment. And it's much easier to actually run uh, the same kind of tests on the development, you know, like when you have the situation that the tests are working on your machine, but they are not working on Travis. We had a bunch of these uh, situations where sometimes you would spend like a day figuring out which version of which package you have to install on Travis, for example, because it's a different environment. So, so yeah, we start a Docker image and then in, in the image, we basically run commands. So something like that. In, somewhere in the process, we, of course, uh, clone the code, check out the corresponding branch. We do have some caching. And one important point is that I did actually, I actually did a talk about this at Codebeam Amsterdam. Uh, one important point here is that uh, as much of the decisions as possible are hard-coded into the continuous integration in Elixir code, right? So again, it's not a generic code and we have the luxury of hard-coding a bunch of these assumptions in our own continuous integration. And thus the DSL is very, very small and simple. The DSL basically amounts to specifying you need to run these commands. It's a little bit more rich than that. We actually have some support for parallelism. So you can say run A and B and then run in parallel C, D and E. If all of those succeed, then run F and so on and so forth. But that's pretty much it. And the uh, funny thing is that our DSL is also Elixir because why not? You know, why would we want to invent something else? Uh, so, so we have like an Elixir script. The continuous integration evaluates it. It's eval which would normally be bad, but it's not bad for us because we write our own CI. We know the uh, exact boundaries, so we, we can allow to do this because uh, it's just running directly for us. Was there anything that surprised you in taking on this project that was more difficult than anticipated? Or was it everything kind of pretty straightforward? Let me think. Well, it was it was mostly straightforward. I, I didn't really... I had the most problems actually making Docker work properly. You know, we, we were using Docker. Uh, I feel like it's a common feeling. Yeah. I have a love-hate relationship with Docker. I mean, uh, there are a bunch of things I like and uh, the world was definitely a worse place we, before we had Docker. Uh, but, you know, still not quite working well as I would like it to do. So I remember at the time, and I think it's still, uh, as far as I know, it's still not solved. You cannot, or you can run simultaneous Docker builds, 
but they're gonna trip over each other and you're gonna get some random failures or sometimes you know not not always sometimes things are gonna fail other times things are gonna last like again a, an order of magnitude longer than they're supposed to last so for example we still have in our code base just serialization to have just one docker built at a time that's and then of course there are those problems with mounting volumes and having permissions uh, <laughs> yeah i can i can see chris shaking his head yeah <laughs> no i mean like let's not pretend that docker's good chris no i mean like like <laughs> we needed I, something to complain about this episode no i mean but but you know what i'm saying like like in the sense that like we shouldn't settle for this right like is is i like it's better. I totally agree with the sentiment. It's like it, it's like way better than spinning up a bunch of like vagrant boxes or whatever, which is like what I used to have to do. Like it's way better than that. I mean, it's lighter weight than all that, and I don't, you know, and and obviously it's it, Docker itself has like gotten better than it used to be in terms of just doing development work with it, but it's still not good. Like it's like <laughs> let's not pretend that like we're there yet. Is I guess all I'm That's saying. That's fair. That's fair. Like, we can do better. There can be. It can be. I, better. And yeah. and I and I believe they're working on it. I think they're working on <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Sure. I mean, they'd have to. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't know that anybody's had a positive. I mean, especially locally, working with a team with multiple developers. If you're trying to integrate Docker locally to mimic production, I don't know that I've ever had a positive or know anybody that's had a positive experience. No. I just love. I just love listening to all the DevOps people unironically talk about how much like JavaScript fatigue there is in the world, while they like spin up yet another version of Kubernetes with some other YAML nonsense to get all their Docker nonsense working together with the latest hotness of Envoy and Istio, and it's like, okay, yeah, you're right, yeah, a hundred percent. There's definitely too much YAML uh, in the world. I, I think <laughs> YAML is one of my personal nemesis, you know, like... Uh, <laughs> that might be the title for the show, you guys. Yeah. YAML's bad. Like, YAML's just, like, legit bad. We have gone... Mm. We, but we have come a long way since we did build scripts in, in Ant in XML, right? Uh, well, we replaced, like, uh, XML with a shorter XML. Right. <laughs> that's that's, that's yeah. fair. That's fair. Y- YAML is XML, I mean... Now we just have protobufs and gRPC. It's better. We promise. <laughs> it's not about YAML. I think what, what really, uh, what I really want aim at here is like increasingly, and this has probably been for ages, ever since I actually started working with software, and increasingly we have like this tendency to wrap stuff in the, these declarative DSLs, which are like uh, non-Turing complete, but still you get like you have YAMLs where you write if statements, you know, w- w- what is that? <laughs> there are like very specialized things. You don't really get to have like a proper compiler, type checker, any sort of linter verifier or something like that. You don't get to have like runtime flexibility, runtime based decisions, things like that. And so you're like really sort of constrained there and you end up writing some bash scripts which generate those YAMLs or whatever from some other kind of YAML, so uh, you transpile YAML to YAML. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of, you know, it leaves you wondering uh, if this is really uh, the proper way. And I had like what I was talking about on Amsterdam when I was presenting continuous integration. Uh, one thing that I feel about uh, really strongly about Erlang and Elixir is that you can do a lot of stuff directly in there, you know. So continuous integration is an example of that, but you can really do a bunch of stuff as, uh, of course, uh, all of you know. Uh, you can do, say, if you want caching, you don't necessarily have to use Redis. You can uh, run, like, ETS tables, for example, or uh, Mnesia or whatever. You can run stuff in process, and you can control those services with imperative, uh, Turing-complete, runtime-flexible language, which is the language that you use 
to write other kinds of things, you know, in the same project. So it runs everything in the same project, in the same process. And this is my dream, which I sort of shared at, at the Amsterdam. Like uh, the thing that I would like to see is when I want to write a web-facing CRUD, typical web-facing CRUD, you know, small to medium, we're not talking WhatsApp scale here. We're talking like, like these small applications. So it's web-facing, it has some CRUD operations. I want to be able to do everything in Elixir, like do a mixed new project, add some dependencies, and that's it. I have a single project, I run a single operating system process per each machine in the cluster. Some small cluster doesn't have to go like to hundreds or thousands, you know, we're talking about two, three machines or something like that. And I want to have everything in there. The persistent story, I want to have embedded SQL database, uh, native Elixir or Erlang SQL database, you know, which doesn't have impedance, doesn't have to be like super feature rich, like say PostgreSQL, doesn't have to be super fast, but uh, it can work for small loads. It doesn't have impedance mismatch at all. You can literally store Erlang terms there, like tuples, maps and whatnot things like that and this will be like super exciting which clearly of course uh, is a very crazy dream but uh, I, I think that uh, at least of uh, the platforms and the runtimes available uh, these days that uh, Beam is one of the few if not the only that can actually even deliver something like that. Yeah I'm, I'm continuously just blown away by the scaling that you just get for free. Like we have services that are handling you know, many orders of magnitude that are running on a very small number of boxes and have almost seen zero tuning in their lifetime. Like it's all just, we've spent all of our time doing business logic stuff and almost no time has been spent on how do we make this part of it faster? Cause it's really slow. Like we just get that part almost for free. There's certain, certain, you know, services deal with that more, but, but just generally it's like this runtime is just so good. Like, I'll take whatever other like foibles about the language, like, and whatever, you know, other nonsense people get uppity about, like the runtime is just so good. Like it's, I've never worked on anything that, that gave you that kind of power. Mm, yeah, totally agree. Yeah. I mean, like I mentioned frequently, you have like this preemptive concurrency, right? Preemptive scheduling people are like left to, you know, what does that mean? And I mean, we had a situation, there was some very strange bug in the early, earlier version of Postgrex. And the Postgrex actually ended up in an infinite loop, you know, so it was running infinite loop. You know, you have one CPU, 100%, this happens like Friday afternoon, no one's around. It runs like that for the whole weekend. And we had some attack challenge and people are doing the attack challenge, you know, we have other cores and uh, the scheduler is uh, preempting, so nothing is really blocked. You have this thing running for like three days, 100%. We go on Monday, we see the problem, you know, we trace the thing, so to actually figure out what is happening and then just kill that single process without disturbing anything else. I mean, where, where else would you have that? Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's no, really, it's, it's amazing. It's super, super empowering. It's, just, it's the thing that still gets me excited about it. Like that's the thing where I still go out and talk to people about this because it's like the runtime is just so much fun. Yeah, it's, it's super well uh, devised, you know, like uh, imagined and, uh, one can really tell that they used, they gave themselves a lot of time, you know, there wasn't like, you know, quick time to market or something. They iterated and thought about these ideas. And like, uh, I remember seeing somewhere, I forgot who, who said it, but it was like, it's incredible how uh, Erlang uh, was and still is ahead of its time. You know, it's like, what, two decades, more than two decades. It's true. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know, it's... 
but but they are missing ya- yaml yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's yeah. the real thing is like at, at this point it feels like the world has essentially it's like taken back control from development right like we you, you guys all, these developers like all picked like these slow languages or whatever and now that's like what we're beholden to and so now we need we need you know and you follow that course for however long and then you get a kubernetes it's like now we need to democratize compute because we can't utilize we need don't have enough compute to run all these things and and like that that's how you end up in that world like you're trying to solve the problem at hand that's that's a worthwhile goal but like we don't i don't know we don't have to use any of that stuff like we don't use any of that stuff like we just run on ec2 instances <laughs> like i don't know it's it, very small amounts of yaml all right y'all i will let you keep talking i have to run sasha it was so nice to get to chat with you for a it little was- bit Great seeing you, and hope I'll meet you live at some point. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. I have to run too, actually. Um, but but Anna, before you you go, just in case you want to pick up Sasha's book, uh, if you want a forty yeah. percent discount, it, yeah, it's I do. Pod P O D E L X Outlaws nineteen. It's forty percent discount on anything from Manning, and it's it's uh, perpetual. So Sweet. so it won't. It, it's permanent. They tell me. Cool. Pod like the late '90s, early 2000s crossover Christian metal band. Oh, nice! <laughs> cool, y'all. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, oh, I know. Yeah, I wish we could. Sasha. I wish we could keep going for a while. Yeah. Well, you and Sasha could keep going if you have time. There's no rule that says says that. I, I don't have too much longer. Yeah, let's wrap up then. I mean, <laughs> we did record for quite a while, right? So you do have a lot of, you have enough of material. More than enough. Thank you so much. You are, it was so lovely getting to chat with you. Uh, but we're going to continue, right? It's to be continued. That's yes, right. Yes, to be continued. Yeah. There's so much more to talk about. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank have you to for have, have you back. Hope, hope uh, I'll visit again. Yes, please. Yeah, hopefully uh, soon. That. Great. Cool. Thanks, Sasha. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks, y'all. Everybody have a great Bye. day. Bye. See you. You too. Bye.